Welcome to this episode of CEO Perspectives, a signature series by the Conference Board. I am Markus Schomer, Senior Economist here at the Conference Board and the guest host of this podcast episode. In today's conversation, we'll start discussing the state of the economy in January of 2024 and the latest Consumer Confidence Index results. Joining me today is Dana Peterson, Chief Economist at the Conference Board. Welcome, Dana. Hi, Marcus. It's great to be here. Well, let's get right into the Consumer Confidence Index, because I think it's a really good gauge of where we are in terms of the U.S. economy right now. Um, when you looked at the results, what did it reveal about the state of affairs for U.S. consumers? Sure. Well, we saw that consumer confidence surged in January uh, to start off the year on a really high note after finishing the second half of last year, also on a high note. Um, we saw that confidence rose from 108.0 to 114.8. And 114.8 is the highest level we've seen since 2021. So we're at a two-year high, and that really reflected an upbeat consumer in the present tense and also more optimism about the future. Um, that's I mean, really really optimistic and positive results. What were the, the main uh, drivers of that of that upward movement? Sure, a lot of it was the present situation, and that's a combination of uh, measures asking about business conditions and labor market conditions. So even though the ISM uh, for manufacturing activity in the U.S. is signaling recession, the services measure has ticked up a little bit. It's kind of floating around 50. So business conditions are better than they were um, earlier throughout much of last year. And also most consumers are working, um, indeed, we see that payrolls um, on a monthly basis are still quite positive, and a lot of it's happening. A lot of the gains are in those sectors that have seen labor shortages. But even away from that, we're not seeing much in the way of layoffs. And so most people are working, they're seeing their real incomes rise. And so with those two pieces together, we saw an improvement in the present situation. Yeah, that's pretty remarkable. If you if you drill down a little bit more, because we, we, we have um, uh, more detailed results in our survey, are there any interesting trends when you look at different demographics? Sure. So overall, in the month, just about every age group was more optimistic. And when we look at it by income, only the wealthiest folks <laughs> were a little bit less optimistic, but folks making less than 125000 were certainly happier in the month. So it's interesting that the upper income group uh, was less optimistic, especially given the fact that in, that consumers believe that interest rates are going to be lower at some point over the next six months, and also that the stock market is going to continue to move upward. So, But I would say that for the most part, consumers were much happier in January than they have been in some time. Now, one of the big themes over the last year and a half uh, two years uh, really has been, of course, the surge in inflation, and that's one of the that was one of the reasons why consumer confidence dipped so much. Um, do, did we learn anything about how consumers think about uh, inflation? Well, we do have write-ins, and consumers continue to write in and say that they're displeased with the level of prices, and they're also concerned about inflation, which is the rate of increase in prices. But the, the great thing is that the one-year inflation expectations gauge continues to decline, and oftentimes that uh, mirrors what's happening with gasoline prices and, to a certain extent, food prices. But I think um, you know consumers are starting to feel the positive uh, momentum in inflation uh, 
easing. Certainly we peaked back in 2022 and we've seen material declines in, well, the material slowing in inflation, especially for those key items like food and energy, um, but also for other items, especially with regard to shelter costs, which um, are a huge share of what consumers are paying for out of their paychecks. And that shows up in a pretty sizable weight in both the CPI and the PCE deflator. Yeah, it's always this interesting this interesting issue about uh, inflation is is a is the rate of change of price increases and when it slows that's one thing but the actual prices may not decline so some consumers may just look at the level of of prices and continue to see them uh, being elevated yes although of course uh, as you mentioned gas prices and and also shelter to some extent rents are actually coming down outright you see the prices actually coming down not just the rate of increase slowing right yes so. Yeah, that's 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 everything that I just said. And, and the thing is that with the write-ins, we have write-ins for the price and write-ins for inflation. So yes, we have more people complaining about the level. They'll say, oh, eggs and milk and, and chicken are expensive, but the price is not rising as rapidly. And we're seeing that reflected in consumer price indexes. And I think we're also seeing that reflected in the uh, lowering inflation expectations. Now, the the inflation story was was sort of the one major major sort of macro story over the last uh, uh, the last two years or so. Uh, how about the, the recession? You know, we've been talking so much about the recession. We've been forecasting uh, a recession here for a while at the conference board. What 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 are consumers' views about the recession? Do they still see that as a major risk, uh, or is that also easing? Sure, we have two indicators within the conference uh, within the the consumer confidence survey that give us a sense of what consumers think about recession. So first is the expectations gauge, and that's been above 80, which is a threshold that usually symbolizes recession if we're below that. It's been above 80 for two or three months now, and it popped up to 83.8. So that's a reflection of consumers being less pessimistic about future incomes, future business, the future business environment and also future labor market conditions. So to that degree, consumers are less convinced that there's going to be a recession at some point within the next six months. And then we do, we have a new index that we've been running for the last year or so, which explicitly asks consumers, do you expect a recession at some point over the next year? And that continues to fall in terms of the percentage. So consumers are less convinced that there will be uh, a recession or some kind of downturn going forward. Yeah, of course, that makes sense. I mean, the, if confidence rises, then I think the the the, the outlook, uh, the more negative outlook, also eases. That's a, I think the combination of that is a really good confirmation of what the what the index is showing us. And it is quite interesting to look at this expectations index, how it's been um, going up and down around this eighty, this critical eighty threshold that you highlight. Um, never really falling too far below, but also never really rising enough above uh, 80 in order to sort of put that recession store to rest, right? Well, yes, but the, I think that key thing is is the question that we ask outright, because within the expectations index, we don't ask, do you think there's going to be a recession? That's a separate mm -hmm. question that we've added. And certainly it, it reached a high in the 70s in terms of percentage. And now we're back towards the level that we were at when we first started measuring this index. Mm -hmm. Now, could it fall further? Potentially, um, I would imagine it would, but the good news is that consumers are less worried about it. And I think that's also uh, 
evident in the fact that the expectations measures underpinning the expectations index have been improving. Now, another uh, piece of information we can uh, we can gain from the survey are consumers' views on financial markets and interest rates. Um, is there anything interesting in this month's release? Absolutely. Consumers are expecting interest rates to be lower going forward, and we've seen a downward trajectory in those expectations for interest rates. And I think that largely reflects what they're hearing on the 6 o'clock news. The Fed is done raising interest rates. Um, they're on pause right now, and they're thinking about cutting interest rates at some point this year. And indeed, when we look at the communications the Fed has produced, yes, they're signaling that there will be interest rate cuts. The summary of economic projections has 75 basis points of cuts. That's not a forecast. It's just a, a combination of the different views of the participants. But nonetheless, I think consumers are hearing that, they're feeling that, and they're also seeing it in mortgage rates. Mortgage rates have come off quite significantly from a high from being above 8% to around 6%. That's still elevated. It's still twice what most people um, were experiencing um, maybe just two years ago, but that's still significant. And they see that as a signal that interest rates are gonna to continue to fall. The other piece is that, um, as I mentioned earlier, consumers expect the stock market to continue to rise. While most consumers do not own stock, they do see the stock market as a proxy for employment. Um, future employment, because they figure if stocks are rising, companies are doing well, their earnings are high, and they're less likely to let go of workers. And so consumers feel better about that. So those are two um, positive developments that we see in the data. It's actually a really great example. You just uh, laid out how financial conditions feed into expectations of uh, consumers and then potentially into actual economic activity. Um, but let's see what the survey is telling us about the connection between, well, is confidence high, is confidence low on the one hand, but what are people actually saying about buying plans, buying cars or buying homes? Well, it's interesting. The buying plans measures in our survey are quite volatile um, and they all fell in the month. So that's for purchasing hmm goods, uh, meaning cars, homes, and other things like appliances. But over six month annual basis, they've also been slowing. But you know, one, one issue is that this survey is really only asking about goods consumption. And so it's not surprising if people are shifting away from mostly buying goods and having a better balance of goods versus services. And indeed, when we look at the consumer spending data that comes from the Bureau of Economic Analysis, consumers are spending a lot and they're spending a lot on services. So unfortunately, this doesn't capture the services element, but certainly when it comes to goods, consumers are downshifting. Now, the, these numbers are for January. So um, they, I think that give us an important idea of the trend. If we look back at the available actual data of consumer activity, consumer spending, whether that's um, what was in the last fourth quarter GDP uh, report or the, the very uh, latest numbers in terms of retail sales, um, that upswing in consumer confidence, is that consistent with what we're actually seeing in terms of consumer activity, actual spending numbers? Yes. I mean, the thing is that I would never take the consumer confidence index and put it on a chart with consumer spending. It just doesn't work that way. 
um, the confidence does not lead the spending. But certainly when you look at the behaviors, yes, consumers spent a ton of money last year. Um, they were supported by a number of factors. Yes, many of them were working. Um, many of them, uh, especially those in in-person jobs, saw increases in wages. Their real incomes began to rise as inflation slowed. And um, many consumers, well, at least some of them, we think mostly at the upper end of the income spectrum who received checks still had some additional stimulus money left over. But we also saw that credit card use surged to very high levels and delinquencies are up. So consumers, especially at the lower end of the income spectrum, finance a lot of their spending with credit cards and also with buy now, pay later schemes. So the good news is that in when you roll it up into GDP, yes, it's positive spending, but we have to wonder if these um, elements that were that were supporting spending are going to be persistent and whether they're sustainable. And we question that. Well, that was a very thorough look at the latest results of our Consumer Confidence Index. Uh, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back with more of the conversation with Dana Peterson. What does the future of work mean for your employees? How will your company navigate ESG? Will there be a global recession? At the conference board, our experts translate the latest research and economic analysis into insights and real-time problem solving for your organization. Membership at the conference board provides your team with an assortment of knowledge from economics, marketing and communications, ESG, public policy, and human capital. As a member, you'll have access to our center experts, member-exclusive events, data and benchmarking tools, and peer sharing that will help you understand the present and shape the future. Consider becoming a conference board member today by visiting www.conference-board.org. Welcome back to CEO Perspectives. I'm your guest host, Marcus Schomer, Senior Economist here at the Conference Board. I'm joined by Dana Peterson, Chief Economist at the Conference Board. Now, we had a, a very good look at uh, the results of the Consumer Confidence Index and the state of the consumer and consumer spending. Let's talk a little bit more broadly about the U.S. economy. What is the outlook for growth and inflation? Sure. Well, the outlook, let's start with inflation. The outlook for inflation is positive, meaning we're going to continue to see slowing in inflation. How do we know that? Well, a big chunk of inflation is shelter costs, which I mentioned earlier in the program. And shelter costs typically follow what has happened with existing home prices 18 months ago. So if we look at what's happened to existing home prices, they've fallen off, um, they've slowed significantly, and we're seeing that being borne out in the data for shelter costs in the CPI and the, the PCE deflator. Also, we're seeing that rents, new rents, are lower. So all of that is positive and constructive for further slowing in inflation back to the Fed's 2% target. Um, and that's, that's a big driver of what's going to help cool off inflation this year. But, you know, we do still have concerns about services in general, because most of the inflation is coming from services. So for example, you do have insurance premiums rising for homes and cars. And a lot of that's a function of, of the fact that there are greater financial losses from weather events, flooding and droughts and wildfires. And so many insurance companies are raising premiums. And in some cases, they're they are not even providing insurance. 
um, to certain regions. And also, especially for cars, cars are becoming much more high tech and hence more expensive to insure. It's not clear when we're going to see an end to increases in the insurance costs that consumers are facing. But another aspect of upward inflation pressure on uh, services is wages. Um, as I mentioned earlier, labor shortages are here. Um, they may reduce in intensity over the next few months, but it's a long-term problem. Why? Because we have roughly 10,000 people retiring per day. Those are the baby boomers exiting the labor markets and taking their skills with them. So companies are faced with fewer workers who are younger and less experienced. So many companies are using money to both attract talent and retain talent. So given that, we, we're probably going to continue to see upward pressure from wages um, on consumer inflation. But for the most part, the big behemoth, the big elephant in the room are shelter costs. And those are going to continue to slow, helping to bring inflation back to the 2% target sustainably, we think by the end of this year. So you already touched, touched on it a little bit um, in terms of wage growth, but what are we thinking about uh, actual employment growth uh, in, in this environment? And, and uh, if you connect all the dots, what is the outlook for the Fed for this year? Sure. So um, when it comes to employment, well, let me take a step back. I didn't talk about GDP growth. So the U.S. economy uh, exceeded expectations last year, mostly because consumer spending continued. But again, some of that was probably labored um, and reflective of debt spending. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, we saw GDP rise. So we still, so given that, we think that the likelihood of a soft landing this year, which basically I define it as the Fed achieving its 2% target over the medium run uh, without a recession is increasing. That probability has definitely increased, but there's still risks of recession. And as of our January forecast, we still had a couple of quarters of negative GDP growth. And we do expect that payrolls are probably going to shrink and also the unemployment rate may rise to 4.3 percent from a low of 3.4 percent achieved about two year a year and a half ago so that's roughly 600,000 job losses but this is pretty mild this would be a short shallow very mild recession um, nothing compared to the millions of people who lost their jobs during the great financial crisis and during the pandemic or the spikes in the unemployment rate that we saw during those two episodes. Um, but again, we could have a soft landing where you could still see sizable gains in payrolls and not much movement in the unemployment rate and continued positive, although probably smaller positive growth rates um, through the middle of this year and then a pickup later this year. Um, so what does that mean for the Fed? Well, it's going to really depend upon um, inflation, number one. And I think the Fed will say tomorrow that they're pleased with the trajectory of inflation and the speed at which inflation, both overall and less volatile food and energy prices, um, are slowing. And they're also looking at the, the rental and the housing and shelter components as we are, and probably also recognize that we're headed towards shrinkage of that giant... <laughs> component of shelter costs and inflation. So that's going to be a positive for the Fed to decide to reduce the degree of, of tightening or restrictiveness in monetary policy. And I want to make it clear that um, we shouldn't really think of this as easing, because oftentimes easing is what 
the central bank does when there's a problem, right? When the economy is not doing well, this is a calibration of reducing restrictiveness. And I think ultimately the Fed's going to lower interest rates, but we're not going to get back down to the average that we saw over the last 15 years, which was one and a half percentage points nominally. Um, and in real terms, you know, roughly zero. I don't think that we're going to get that low, but certainly I do think the Fed, again, is going to cut interest rates by about 100 basis points this year. It could be more, especially if inflation falls uh, more quickly than expected. Um, and it's also going to depend upon the labor market. So one big reason why most people remain con uh, working last year and the unemployment remains subdued is again because of labor shortages. And in our own CEO confidence survey for the US, businesses, most of them were either hiring and those are the ones that were experiencing the labor shortages and government and leisure and hospitality and healthcare. But nearly 50% of CEOs as of the fourth quarter said that they were hoarding labors or retaining workers, despite the fact that they thought there might be a recession. And they also thought they'd have to pay up and continue to pay up in wages. So that's also going to determine what the Fed does. But I think inflation is probably the number one issue they're going to be looking at. And certainly GDP growth in the labor market will be secondary. But altogether, I think that there's going to be a scenario where the Fed can feel comfortable um, reducing the amount of restrictiveness in monetary policy and also reduce um, the the amount of, of quantitative tightening that's occurring monthly. So um, basically an outlook that uh, calls for a soft landing, maybe very a very mild uh, recession and uh, rate cuts by the Federal Reserve in the second half of the year. Let's maybe switch from the US to the rest of the world and talk a little bit more about the international outlook. Uh, and maybe let's start with the outlook for Europe and China. Sure, so the outlook for Europe is uh, a little less sanguine relative to the US. Um, Europe is, is experiencing slower inflation and a lot of that reflects lower energy prices as the European economy is diversifying away from fossil fuels, especially from Russia, um, given the war in Ukraine, um, it's finding alternatives in terms of natural gas from MENA and the U.S., and also shifting more towards renewables. So that's the good news. Uh, inflation is falling very quickly in Europe. But um, in terms of growth, it's still going to be quite weak. And that's because Europe is also dependent upon trade um, and also dependent upon manufacturing. And indeed, Germany is the largest economy. And as and you would also tack on the UK together, they're both not going to do very well this year. They've been struggling in and out of recession, and that's going to weigh on the Euro area. I mean, the European Western European outlook. Um, so given that we're expecting growth of of about six tenths this year, um, but then picking up to one and a quarter percent next year. But all in all, that's still well below the average that we saw. Um, pre-pandemic. Meanwhile, when we look at China, we a lot of folks are concerned and thinking that China is going to enter recession and that there's going to be this giant loud crash. We don't believe that. We do believe that China's growth is going to slow from 5.2% last year to 4.1% this year, but that is still significant growth. And indeed, when we look at contributions to global GDP growth, China is going to continue to be the largest contributor to global GDP growth. But why do we expect a slowing? Well, a lot of it's a function of 
the ongoing housing crisis and real estate crisis in China, um, which is impacting consumer confidence um, because many consumers lost wealth. They're engaging in precautionary savings. And even for those who didn't necessarily lose wealth, there's no social safety net in China to swoop in and rescue you. So consumers are saving, they're not spending. Meanwhile, uh, provincial and regional governments are unable to swoop in and provide stimulus because they are subject to a lot of that debt um, on their balance sheets related to the housing market. Meanwhile, the external environment is quite weak uh, for China. China, um, Europe is a huge trading partner for China. And indeed, Germany is one of the biggest trading partners for China. So if there's weakness in Europe, then that means China is going to experience weakening in its exports. Um, the good news is that you know the government and the central bank are signaling more stimulus. The central bank is discussing reducing China's res res required reserve ratio and also loosening some lending standards uh, for banks. And the government may provide more fiscal stimulus, but there are limits to this uh, because you know you really. Um, while you can stimulate the, the supply side, the demand side remains weak, and that's really about consumer confidence. So that's why we have slower growth in China. Overall, we think the global economy um, is going to grow by 2.7% this year compared to 3.1% last year and pick up to 2.9%. Now, our forecasts are somewhat weaker uh, compared to the IMF, which just posted its forecast on Tuesday, January 30th. Um, but for the most part, um, I think, you know, a lot of it's because they have weaker forecasts for, we have weaker forecasts for Europe, China, and also the U.S. But for the most part, neither organization, the conference board nor the IMF, are expecting outstanding growth this year or next year or growth to return to what we saw during pre-pandemic levels. Um, that's already a, a, a good introduction, a, a good uh, overview of the rest of the world. Um, and it's interesting that Europe and China both expected to be uh, to see slowing growth and to some extent reinforcing each other because of the very intensive trade links that both have with each other. What are the key upside and downside risks to the outlook? Sure. Well, let's start with the, the bad news and then I'll finish on the upside. So certainly the, the biggest downside risks are persistent upward inflation pressures. And that's coming from, a lot of it's coming from structural changes in the global economy. So for example, aging labor markets as baby boomers shift towards retirement. Deglobalization, which is coming in the form of diversification, but also reshoring of supply chains. So the breaking up of this global supply chain uh, system, which we know um, had been disinflationary. There's also the energy transition, which is going to cost tons of money in investing investments in infrastructure and equipment and you know swapping out old things for new the death of old businesses and the birth of new businesses and certainly when we think about um, the us and certain other economies you're you have massive housing shortages affordable housing shortages so that's also potentially an upward pressure on inflation i would also highlight geopolitical risks so we have wars, uh, active conflicts on five out of seven continents. And the biggest ones that are taking up a lot of oxygen are clearly the ongoing war in Ukraine, where Russia invaded Ukraine almost two years ago. And that has been placing upward pressure on food prices, especially for the MENA region and uh, parts of Asia. Meanwhile, we have the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas, which has 
broaden to skirmishes in the Red Sea and other areas in the region and certainly broaden the U.S. as kind of a, I would say, a resistance to Iran and, you know, its operatives throughout the region. So those things are definitely disrupting trade. And certainly we could, we're going to have continued tensions between the U.S. and China. I mean, things are a little bit calmer now, but there's always a risk that you could see a dial-up in tensions and certainly um, issues uh, politically, um, geopolitically between the two economies that can result in disrupted trade. Um, but on the upside, you know, we could certainly have the ends of these conflicts. But I think for businesses, um, increasing productivity is going to be a huge upside for them. Certainly investments, um, better uh, public investments in infrastructure, but also private investments in infrastructure and R&D, the use of uh, and adoption of AI and other forms of digital transformation, and then constant investments in human capital. So those things are going to help uh, increase productivity. And certainly we could have even more breakthroughs over time in technology that help lower costs for businesses who will ultimately pass it on to the consumer. Um, so I think those are some of the, there are many upsides and downsides, but I think those are some of the key ones that we'll be watching for this year and next year. Excellent. Well, we covered a lot of ground from the US to the rest of the world and uh, highlighted some of the upside and downside risks. Um, thanks, Dana, for joining the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening into the CEO Perspectives. Every week, we talk to a prominent thought leader to provide insights on the issues of our time. We'll cover the leading topics in economics, public policy, ESG, human capital, and more. Please share CEO Perspectives with your colleagues. I'm your guest host, Marcus Schomer, and this series has been brought to you by the Conference Board. You have been listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the Conference Board.